Lord, would you give us yourself? Meet us this morning. Let us sit around the, the campfire with you. Bless us with your presence, Lord. Thank you. So I don't know if you saw the, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a hot article making the rounds. I don't know if you saw it. Um, it's Why I Am at Trinity by Susanna Glass and What I Dream of at Church. Hope you saw that. Here's what Susanna dreams of church. Just that it be a place of incredibly obvious Christ-infused love, where I'm not afraid to come exactly as I am at that moment in time and not feel any need to demonstrate or prove who I might once have been or who I feel I should be by this point in my life. And that it be exactly that for every single other person there and that I not hold them to expectations of who they should be or who I think they present themselves to be. That it be that for anyone I might be able to entice to accompany me there. That's Susanna's dream for what church could be. So, two weeks ago, we walked into the baptism of Jesus and we saw, if you will, the Trinity in action, so to speak. Last week, Bishop Andrew was here and he showed us, we might say, he took us in a wonderful, poignant way to be with the second person of the Holy Trinity. And it was all about basically what Susanna said, the approachability of Jesus, the lowliness, the gentleness, the accessibility of him. This week, we're a little bit out of order. We're going to back up a step and take the first person of the Trinity. And we're going to talk about what it is about the character of the first person of the Trinity, the Father, that allowed Jesus to be so accessible, that allows Susanna's dream to make sense, and under which, if you will, Jesus was able to carry out the mission and go to the cross and do the things that he did. Now, Jesus communicated in primarily, not only, but primarily two ways. Now, when he got a you know, attacked, if you will, when people came at him and he tried to corner him, <clears throat> he would ask questions. Jesus asked umpteen more questions than he answered. He only answered something like three questions ever, except that he answers with questions. He asked questions back. But when he's on his own terms and he gets to, well, he makes everything his own terms, doesn't he? But, but when he gets to start and he's taking the initiative, he loves to tell parables. Now, parables are brilliant, right? Parables are brilliant because they do more than bullet points can do. They're story. And we live in story, and God made us to live in story, and stories, sort of like poems, say more than you can say in any other way. What we maybe don't realize about Jesus' parables is that a lot of them were, were really uncomfortable to hear for those who sat in the room hearing them. He had some surprises in them. Some of them landed with stingers, actually. They were never boring. I mean, does that, that shouldn't surprise us, that Jesus would never be boring, right? The, the, the worship team were up here rehearsing this morning, and they were, they were singing that fantastic chorus, the Lord our God, you know, you just, and you just get lost in it. And Jennifer said, I just love it when we do this. She said, it's like time stops and it just goes on and on and on. And I said, my goodness, they're talking about my sermons. That's how it feels. It's like, it just goes on and on. 
Jesus was not boring. So Kenneth Bailey was this brilliant New Testament scholar, and he lived in Lebanon prior to the days of the Civil War in the 80s. And he lived there for several decades. And he would go out and he would spend time, I mean, camp and stay with the Bedouin people who were in the region and still living as close as any people in the world at that time to the region where Jesus lived and just the, if you will, the ways and the habits and the landscape and all the rest. He, he had a program he did. He had a way that he did this. He would go and he would meet the village elders and he would ask, can I come spend time? He would wait until he had gotten trust built up with them over five years at least before he would then begin to say, could I tell you some stories? I just want to see how you react to these. And then he would tell them the parables of Jesus. And he would just see how they reacted to them. It's, it's like taking an old movie and colorizing it. The parables come to life. So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to walk through this most amazing, considered the greatest of Jesus' parables. And we're just going to take little bits and then we're going to you know, have how would they have responded to this? How would they have felt about this? So just imagine yourself, you're a, you know, you're a goat herding Bedouin. You've come out of the tent. You're sitting around the campfire. And this dude is telling you this story. All right? So he begins, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger, the younger son, I'm a younger son of two. We don't make that big a deal out of that in our society. Traditional cultures do. Next week, we're going to baptize Abe. Sarkisian on the celebration of the feast of the presentation. Where Ted and Shana? Where are you guys? I don't know if you. I don't know if you've realized you may be signing him up for like future of ordination or something, right? You're going to be presenting him on the feast of the presentation as a firstborn son. Huge moment, kind of big if you're in a traditional culture, right? So the younger son has the audacity to go to the father and say, "Can I have my inheritance now?" Which is basically saying what. I wish you were dead. So the, already, Jesus has already scandalized the entire crowd. They're already sitting there going, what? Let me at him, right? Where is this story going? This is outrageous. So they're all outraged indignation. Before long, so the father does this. And they're like, he did it? What? And before long, the younger son collected all his belongings, went off to a foreign land. And the translation we read this morning he, he lost it all in the wildest extravagance. The Greek word there is, is the verb is the same word as for salvation, except negated. So in a way that doesn't lead to wholeness, to saving, to fullness of life, in, in some way that doesn't go into a place of him being the person that God intends him to be and all that going somewhere. And all the people sit around, they're like, well, he would. I mean, that's what that kid would do, right? That's what the crowd's saying. So he ran through all his money. A famine comes up, and he begins to, our little version said, feel the pinch. Now, that's an English understatement. This was a, we had a little English version this morning. And the, and the crowd's sitting around. They're having general righteous indignation, right? Mm-hmm. There you go. Caught up with him, did it? Mm-hmm. He's getting what he deserves. So he went and he hired himself to one of the citizens of that country who sent him out to feed the pigs. Now, these people are Jews. And they're going, what? You can't feed pigs. This is crazy. They're scandalized, gasps of horror. 
He gets to the point where he wants to stuff himself with the food the pigs were eating, but no one gives him anything. And at this point, we're just tusk tusking, right? Like, yep, there it is. Wiped out, no future, no hope. The horizon is shut. He's done. Total rejection, totally ostracized. And then we come to this absolutely beautiful moment. Literally in the Greek, it says he came to himself. Literally in the Greek, he came to himself. He woke up. He realized, hey, I'm living a story here. I'm a person. I've been given the gift of life. It, it matters that I have this gift. It matters that I have this life. I, I want to live. He, he comes to himself and has the gift of life. So he realizes he feels terrible shame, and he's thinking to himself, what am I going to do? So he says, well, I'll just go back to my dad, and I won't try to be a son. I'll, t- I'll, try, to, I'll try to have a transactional performance-based relationship with him. I'll go back to him and I'll say, you know, I don't deserve this, but if you let me work, then we can relate um, purely on a performance basis, right? I'll work, you give me something. I'll work, you give me something. And the crowd's not sure about this. Hmm. All right, we'll see. We'll see about this guy. We don't trust him. We'll see how this goes. So he gets up. He goes to his father. He's still some distance off. And his father ran to greet him. Now the crowd is positively scandalized. Dignified, older, paternal figures in the East do not run. They don't run. I've, I've seen them not running. I've been in Eastern Europe in an Orthodox country. And I've been on a hot day trying to get somewhere, sitting in a car with no air conditioning, sweating bullets. And we come to this place, this little town in the middle of nowhere. We're trying to get this trip done. And there's this backup in this little town, this huge traffic jam. Like, what is going on? Then I realize it's this Orthodox priest in all his robes and stuff. And he's out there and he's trying to cross the street and he's taking his time. And someone shows up and wants to talk to him. And so they just stand there in council in the middle of the street. And everybody else doesn't seem to have a problem with it. You don't question him. You certainly don't hike up your robes and run. But the reason he runs is because the, the young boys of the town would have picked up rocks and chased the son away. And so the father knows, I've got to get out there, far enough out on the edge to get there first. He's been watching. He's been hoping every day. He runs. Now, the crowd are just wiped out at this point. I mean, they're just like, has this man no shame? This, this father, has he no shame? Doesn't he know how fathers behave? He, he just he, he can't do this. They're just beside themselves. So he comes to his father, and he says, Father, I've done wrong. I don't deserve to be called your son anymore. And they're all like, that's right. We know that's right. We know that's true. But the father won't have any of it. The father says, go get the best robe. Go get a ring. Go get shoes. These are marks that inheritance is restored. Inheritance is restored. 
In Genesis chapter 3, when our primeval four parents fail and sin enters the world and they're cast out of the garden, and yet God makes clothes for them, he's promising them in that act that he will not abandon them and that there will be a, made, a, a way made whereby we will be able to move on into everlasting life. All that's wrapped up in that tiny little moment. And the father is saying to the son, no, I'm not going to have a transactional relationship with you. I'm going to have you as a son. And the crowd is just in shock. They're just sitting there like, you know, what? So he says, this is my son. I thought he was dead. He's alive again. And now he's found. And he wants the whole village to know that the son is restored. So they throw a party. And the word in the Greek is that I have him back whole. Literally in the Greek, the word is, is the word whole. Hugiai, hugiai tona, hugiai whole. That's when the servant gets asked in a minute. The father doesn't say the word, but that is the word the servant says in a minute when he gets asked. The crowd is conflicted. I mean, they're sitting there doing the, the yeah, but thing. I mean, that's nice, but, right? Yeah, but, but, but he did, but he did, but he did. They, can't, they cannot digest this. This, friends, this is Jesus pulling back the veil, giving us insight into the reality of the character of the great God who is beyond. The first person of the Trinity, the great God beyond all things, the second person of the Trinity coming among us, making this accessible, and then telling us this story so we can see beyond the veil to the love that is over all things. That's the father in this story. The father who has no shame, who's willing to be embarrassed, who's willing to take the cost on himself, who will hike up his robe and run in front of everyone who thinks, you're toast, dude. No more town council for you. What on earth are you doing? Have you no dignity? There's another son. And Jesus in his brilliance, the way he tells these stories is perfectly parallel. He does the thing they do. He does the stair-step thing with each one of them, and they match up in parallel. And, you know, we don't get that because we don't tell stories that way, but they did. They got it. So they realize, like, this is a matching story. They get more and more uncomfortable as he goes. Because whose side are they on here? They're on the older son's side. And if you're in this room, there's a fair chance that you've been the younger son at some point in life. Maybe you still are. And, and you've had that moment of come to the Father and realize, oh my goodness, I actually can come to the Father and he actually loves me and he takes me the way I am. Maybe you're still having that moment. Hallelujah. Maybe you need to have it still. Well, do then. You can but if you're in this room, there's a good chance that you might also be the, the older son too because now you're on the inside. And let's see what it is that the older son is expected to do. So the older son's out in the fields and he came near the house and he heard the music and the dancing. So he called one of the servants to him. Now the crowd's already disturbed. 
Because the older son is supposed to be at the, at the door of the home while the party goes on. He's supposed to be the gatekeeper. That's the role of the older son. So we're already being clued in that all is not well between the father and the older son either. Because the, the father knows there's no point in going to get the older son because he knows he's not going to come do in good heart what he's supposed to do. So he ends up asking one of the servants and said, and the servant says to him, he's, you know, or excuse me, well, the servant says to him, your brother has arrived, your father's killed the fatted calf because he got him home safe and sound. This is the wholeness word. He got him back and he's whole. Crowd is beginning to stir a bit. They're, they're, they're moving around, you know, on their rock that they're sitting on, right? Because they're just this energy inside is not sure about this. Where is this all going? But the older son was furious, and he refused to go inside. And now the crowd has really conflicted feelings. Because, my word, another impudent son. Are you kidding me? Right? Another son who basically says to his father, I don't care about what you think. I don't care about you. This is just unheard of. You can't be. The father's shamed again. But the father comes in front of God and everybody in the town, comes out from the house to talk with his older son, and the crowd have just got their heads in their hands. I mean, this guy really, truly, he has no dignity at all. He's, now he's going out in front of God and everybody again. He already ran across the village. And now he's coming out, leaving the party. You don't do that in a traditional culture. The host doesn't walk out of the party in a traditional culture, right? He's going out to talk to his son. They're going to make a scene right there in front of everybody. The son bursts out, and he says, all these years we've had a transactional relationship, and I've done everything you told me to do, and you've given me stuff, and that's been our relationship. It's been all performance-based. Now you owe me because I've done for you, is what he says. crowd now feels smug. Why? Because they're all like, yeah, that's right. He has done. You do owe him finally something that's beginning to make some sense again. But when that son of yours arrives who spent all your money on prostitutes, did he? Did he do that? Is that what he did? We don't actually know for sure. We don't actually know that's what he did. We know his incredibly angry brother said that's what he did. We don't actually know if that's what he did, and let's suppose he did. I mean, the way Jesus treated prostitutes means that he'd get the same reaction if that is what he did, but actually we don't really know what he did for sure. And he says, and here you've gone and killed the fatted calf, the calf we've been fattening for this party I've been planning in my head, and you've given it to him. Now the crowd are really feeling vindicated, right? This makes sense. That was his calf. They've been fattening it. Where's the father get off, taking it away, and having a party for this other guy? Father says, my dear son, you've been with me all the time, and everything I have is yours. And now the crowd is conflicted. They're having mixed emotions. Where is this going? What is this about? We had to, the father continues, we had to celebrate and show our joy, for this is your brother. Notice how the brother called it your son, right? Called him your son. The father says, no, no, this is your brother. We're one family. I thought he was dead, but he's alive. 
I thought he was lost, but he's found. What else would love do? And now the crowd are perfectly flummoxed. They're perfectly frustrated and flummoxed. They're still indignant, but they can't argue with that. And they can't get that all sorted. And so they're all sitting there flummoxed by it. And then comes the most shocking thing of all. It's a cliffhanger. If you line these two up as stair-step stories, the way they told them in the ancient world, then they're supposed to be, for every bit that rises up to the climax, there's supposed to be a matching pair to it on the other side. We talked about this before. There's no matching pair to find out. You're left asking, what happens? Does the older son come in, or doesn't he? Does he take his post at the door, or doesn't he? Is he reconciled to the father, or isn't he? Jesus leaves them with a cliffhanger. And there's no satisfaction for them. And then it's like, good night, go to bed. And a week later, when the dudes are out there plowing with the mule, it hits them what it meant. And when the, and when the women are in there kneading on the bread, it hits them what it meant. And they're like, wait a minute. He's calling me the older son. And he wants to know how I'm going to, wait a minute. And they realize that this is about how will they respond to the people who want to turn in life and come to the incredible love of God the Father. Will they welcome them? Will they, from their heart, rejoice? That's what it's been about all along. So friends, wherever you are, wherever you find yourself in this parable, unless you find yourself as God the Father in love, I think you're in a healthy place. Unless you find yourself there. If you think you're that, then we need to talk. But if you find yourself as the younger son, that's okay. If you find yourself as the older son, that's okay. If you find yourself conflicted because you're both at the same time, if you find yourself thinking to yourself, gosh, I know I've been that one. I shouldn't be this one. Wherever you find yourself in this story, God's love has come forward to meet you. This is the amazing thing. The father treats both of them the same way. He comes out at his own cost to meet them each, each one of them. He's willing to be embarrassed. He's willing to take the cost on himself. He's willing to associate with that son. He's willing to let the whole village see that that child, son, daughter, is brought back. So Susanna's dream of a church where anybody in any circumstance can enter in and connect to people works because this incredible love of the Father is like an umbrella over all that is. And it goes out from the room to connect, to bring back. So friends, we move from being gatekeepers to being connectors, to being bridges, being gate openers. Let's just take a moment. I invite you just to close your eyes and be with the Lord.
take a couple of minutes in silence. And I invite you just to simply ask yourself, where do you find yourself in this parable? Where do you find yourself in this parable? Share that with, with Jesus. Just wait for him. Just wait for him. See where he shows up for you. And then believe him. He's real.